Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hi, it's Violet here. This week we're going to talk about two titans of the Italian Renaissance in the company of the acclaimed art historian James Hall. James is a research professor at Southampton University and has published widely on an eclectic range of art history subjects. His latest book, The Artist's Studio, is out now. Please do check out the accompanying images on our website, tttpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to Travels Through Time, James. Before we talk about your book or get into your year, I'd like to start off by asking about your career and how you got into um, art history. So you are a professor, a research professor at Southampton University and an acclaimed art critic. So can you just explain a bit about how you got into doing this? Well, it was all one of the most traumatic episodes of my childhood was when books suddenly stopped having illustrations and I never recovered from it. And I've all, always been interested in art and, uh, and uh, like to uh, write stories based on, uh, on artworks. And I did a lot of pottery, ceramics in, in my... Uh, when I was at school, that uh, ceramics actually figure in the in the book, so I'm very very pleased about that. I did an English degree and then I did a MA in art history, and I started writing reviews for newspapers when I was doing the MA, and uh, and and, it, and it's carried on from there. And I think you know vis- visual literacy is such an important thing, and in Protestant uh, puritanical countries it's sometimes uh, you know not uh, that's not understood well yeah and I mean the dissolution of the monasteries was appalling wasn't it in terms of the destruction of the visual arts in this country yes yes and so can you explain a bit about how you communicate because you're often writing about something that is visual and I wonder how how do you do that how do you think that is done best well I think um, you, you need to start from the from the depiction and then sort of work outwards yes it obviously helps if you've got illustrations though people like Ruskin used to write without have to paint uh, word pictures um, and I still think you have you have to try and try and do that you build up the context towards the picture in terms of you know subject matter style and, and the meaning what and, and the expressive distortions that take place and so I've written a lot on Michelangelo and I talk a lot about that these you know figures like the David are naturalistic but they're also expressive distortions like the giant hands and the big head and things like that and what about your own personal relationship with art? I wonder what kind of art you have at home. I mean, it, what kind of art you would buy if you could afford anything, possibly a Michelangelo sculpture? Um, yes, well, I, I actually have lots of uh, textiles. Um, oh, really? That's some, interesting. Yeah, William, William Morris ostrich pattern textiles. Because uh, I find, and, uh, and I have 
various sort of arts and crafts bits of lights and metal work um, and I, I, I particularly like the um, ideal behind the arts and crafts movement of the house beautiful where everything has to contribute to the, to the beauty and comfort of the house and uh, so, so yes yeah, so I did, don't like the, the vogue that seems to have lasted for about 30 years of minimalism and, uh, and, and all these cold hard surfaces everywhere. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Polished concrete, I think, is yeah. not for a home. Yes, go 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 to a bar and be forced to shout in your loudest ever voice to try and communicate with someone. Well, often the acoustics are so terrible in, yeah. in rooms like that, which don't have enough hang hangings and um, yes. fabrics. Well, uh, yes, I'm the founder and only member of the Bring Back the Shag Pile Carpet. <laughs> Uh, have you ever written about the arts and crafts movement? Have you ever written a book about? I have. I did actually do a proposal for a a, a book on interior design a few years. Um, actually, which was against the the minimalist plague. But my agent couldn't find a publisher, and one of the, one of the people, the editors, she approached was, uh, "Oh, I've just redone my house like that. Uh, I'm not <laughs> going to publish it." A book on it but then in this book there is an awful lot of I, I you know I've done quite a lot of research about the furnishings and I have a chapter called uh, chaste space where artists start to go against the idea of having a comfortably furnished um, studio space and then the bohemian artists um, you know they're doing things like sleeping on the floor and uh, um, to, to try and sort of uh, regain a sort of authenticity and the idea that if you're comfortable, you're you're going to produce um, sort of soppy art. Yeah, boring art. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book. So it it's called The Artist's Studio, A Cultural History. Tell us how you... So it starts with literally Homer in ancient Greece and then goes right up to the present day. So can you tell us a bit about how you structured it and I mean it must have been an enormous task to marshal so much information um, and order it how, how did you structure it? There have been two sort of very slim volumes uh, published quite a long quite a few years ago on uh, the artist's studio and they just focused really on the on painter's studios with a few sculptors thrown in and so you leave out an awful lot if you do that and I I was sort of from pretty early on adamant that you know if you you lose the scene in Homer's Iliad where Thetis goes to Hephaestus's workshop to order a new suit of armour for Achilles and the descriptions are just incredible of uh, Hephaestus He's, he's lame and so he shuffles along and he's sweaty and then he starts up his bellows and then he has all these female automata who both carry him around and help with the with with doing the work and and of course if you're just focusing on painters you you sacrifice this which is the, the sort of founding scene and, and and in many ways the greatest ever scene set in a in an artist's studio and 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 also it makes um you know an important point the fact that he's lame i think the the idea is that human beings have weaknesses and and so 
art and, and the artist studio is the place where we overcome those weaknesses. And of course, in the Bible, you get a similar thing when Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden. And so then all the arts start up or manufacturing, making things. They have to make houses. Um, they have to make clothes. Uh, and, and so I think this, this idea that art and the artist's studio are compensatory activities and places is very important and I think is one of the reasons why um, you know it's so, there's so much interest in the, in the in the artist's workplace. And do you think there's also a connection I think we will come to talk about this in more detail later but but between the physical exertion and and actually especially in the case of things like metalworking and and sculpture not not so much painting but the, the danger, you know, that you could actually really injure yourself, you could um, suffer, your body suffers in the production of something, an artwork, which is going to kind of live forever. Yes, well, I think, you know, Hephaestus's lameness, you wonder whether that was also partly because uh, it's so easy to drop something, you know, on your foot or break mm. your leg and... Uh, someone like Benvenuto Cellini in his uh, biography, the, the 16th century goldsmith who's, who's largely famous for killing people and then going to prison. You know, he, he described you know, getting splinters, metal, metal splinters in, in his eye and nearly losing his oh. eyesight. But then a <clears throat> doctor he sees pours the blood of a white dove into his eye and supposedly that, that, works that a treat. does it um but you know you, you that brings home to you that uh, goggles are very much you know a 20th century um invention and before then the most you could get was a sort of visor to protect you from heat and glare but um yes i found that this this wonderful 18th century book that was looking at diseases that afflict craftsmen nothing really had changed in medicine you know since yeah ever and uh, so you see all these he, he lists all the kinds of terrible things could happen and, uh, and 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 one of the things of course is the use of mercury during uh, bronze casting and cellini uh, make sure that the mercury is done by subcontractors, so that uh, so he's you know not going to come anywhere near the fumes. So they were already aware how dangerous that was. Yeah, yeah. And in order to to write this book, you must have had to use a huge breadth of sources, and I imagine that the you know it, they differ a lot. Whether you're writing about something which is happening today, perhaps you've been to visit some of the studios that you wrote about, which are contemporary. Tell us about Francis Bacon's studio, because that, that's the most fantastic photograph yes. in the very front of the book. Yes, well, this this was is extraordinary. It, it's an archaeological site because they saved the, the studio in um, South Kensington with all its contents. And, and Bacon was famously messy. It was a sort of midden heap of, uh, of rubbish that just piled up with uh, bits of paint and newspapers, source materials, everything just... And, and he, he thought of that, that it would inspire him to make his art. And, this, and that in itself is an, a kind of extension of the bohemian idea that 
um, unless you're uncomfortable, you're you're not going to create good art. You're not going to have the uh, the um, the spark. The spark, yes, yeah. the spark to create good art. And this has been reconstructed in a museum in Dublin. And each of the seven thousand bits has been catalogued, um, and so it becomes like a a sort of saint's shrine, you know, or a hermit's shrine. It's a site of site of pilgrimage, uh, in a in a well formerly Catholic country, um, and and so that that's what in many ways studios have become. Yeah, yeah. and there's lots of quite a few museums now which are artists' houses or recreations of artists' houses with their different rooms or studios. I'm thinking about um, Rembrandt's house in mm. Amsterdam and Dürer's house in Nuremberg, yes. which I'm dying to visit. And and I, I just wondered, can you talk a bit about those? Can you recommend any in particular to our listeners if they're thinking about going? Well, uh, well if you're in London, about 10 minutes away from us is Sir John Stone Museum, which is, is probably the best artist's home there is. It's packed full of. Uh, I mean, he was an architect uh, in in around eighteen hundred, and he designed the Bank of England and and probably his most famous surviving work, apart from the house, is Dulwich Picture Gallery. And inside it, it's a kind of total labyrinth full of collections of plaster casts of antique sculptures, a, an Egyptian sarcophagus. Uh, and they're all arranged in a way that sort of reminds you of Piranesi's prints of the of the prisons. It's a it really is a, a labyrinth, and he uses mirrors, convex and uh, flat mirrors, to disorientate you and direct direct light. And there's also he has stained glass windows, and and there's something at the bottom called a monk's parlor which is, he thought of it as a sort of hermit's den, and he used to take his rather bemused guests and friends there to have, have tea. And, and I use this as a sort of origin of the, the idea of the, um, what I call the, cha- the chase space of where artist studios start to approximate to, to a, a monk's cell. I mean, this isn't especially austere, but the mere fact of being in a, in, in a basement does give it a certain sort of austerity. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Soane Museum is just incredible and it's, it, it, it's in, intact. Yes, it's one of my favourite places. It's wonderful. And are there any others that you particularly visited um, or know for this book? Well, uh, yeah, I th- um, I, I'm particularly fond of the Brancusi studio in, in Paris. I, th- I think the important thing about both John Stone and, and Brancusi, who's an early 20th century artist, is that this is an important cultural phenomenon when the thought that um, an, an artist's studio or, or, or home is worth preserving, you know, becomes you know, central to um, the, the way we understand artists. Um, it always becomes like another sort of artefact. Yes, <clears throat> yeah. So, so instead of um, just, you know, judging an artist by, you know, a work they produce for a particular purpose, the thought is that you have to understand 
the artist and their products in the round in, in order to, to be able to appreciate them. And that same phenomenon is now you go to an exhibition and it begins with self-portraits. Again, the idea that you have to start with the artist and unless you've sort of seen their face and uh, got a sense of how they felt about themselves, you, you can't understand what follows. And of course, it's not usually chronologically accurate because the self-portraits are generally painted when they're successful, <laughs> when there's a market for them, rather than at the start. Artists, I mean, probably now they do with selfies and things, but uh, in the past, you know, the self-portrait wasn't something they uh, thought they had to do at the start of, the, of their career. Yeah, just imagine the art historians of the future sifting through the millions of selfies that yes. they're going to have. Well, they're already doing it now. I'm sure there are lots of <laughs> PhDs being being written. And, and uh, I, I wrote a history, my previous book was a history of self-portraiture. And I see on uh, Google Scholar, where you get citations, all the articles on breastfeeding selfies, all different types of, of selfies that are, 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 you know, huge, it's a huge industry. Yeah, well, it's such a big part of modern life, isn't it? Yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, I think we should start our time travel now. So yes. I'm going to ask you the big question, which is, if you could travel back in time to a particular year in history, which year would it be? It would be 1504. Um, and I would be in Florence, there's a republican government. The Medici were expelled in, in 1494 when the French uh, invaded Italy in order to uh, keep them sweet. Piero de' Medici, who was ruling Florence, gave them the port of Pisa, which was a vital port for, for you know, Florence's access to, to the sea. And so he was expelled, and then you get this very religious government, Savonarola, who, who was a Dominican monk. And so they have burnings of artworks, and uh, uh, he, he's a firebrand. Uh, but he's also, in his um, sermons, he's attacking the church for its corruption, particularly the uh, church in Rome. And this eventually, um, in 1499, I think it is, or 1498, gets excommunicated and burnt at the stake. And then you get a Republican Republican government. Um, and uh, under in 1504, it's under Piero Soderini, who wants to be a patron of the, of the arts. OK, so he sort of wants to follow in the Medici's footsteps and also commission yes. works for the yes. city. Yeah. So let's go, go to your first scene. Um, we're in Florence. Where are we going? Uh, we're going to the Piazza della Signoria, which is the big um, uh, square or in, in front of the Palazzo Vecchio. And the, there's also the Loggia della Lanzia, Zia, which has um, is a, is an arcaded um, space, and uh, outside the uh, Palazzo Vecchio is which is the, the the sort of seat of civic government, and then under the Republican government became the the, the big centre of government, and they built a huge um, council 
chamber. Outside it is Donatello's uh, Judith cutting off the head of Holofernes, a large bronze statue. And what's happening? Who, who are we going to visit? What are we witnessing? Well, we're, we're witnessing um, Michelangelo's sculpture of David. He, he made it in the cathedral workshops and it was the first colossal nude statue um, to be made since antiquity and it's about 15 foot high. He carved it out of a, a block of marble that had originally been a quite huge block of marble originally acquired in 1464 to make a, a sculpture to go on the cathedral buttresses so they, they would be level with the, the base of Brunelleschi's dome. Uh, and then uh, and, and the, the sculptor who was going to make it botched it. So after two years, that was shelved, but the block of marble was left in the cathedral workshops. And, and they, the cathedral, under the Republican government, decided to revive the scheme. But when Michelangelo finished, they thought it was so good that, um, or, or at least the Republican government thought it was so good that they would rather have it ground level. How would they, I mean, well, I'm sure I know they were capable of such extraordinary things, but I mean, how you'd get something that size and that weight up? Well, this is a, this is a key question. And I have a feeling that they realised pretty quickly they would never be able to get it up onto the and then cathedral keep it there. buttress. And also, <clears throat> you know, it, it hasn't, there's not much support for the legs. He's cut them away. It, usually you have a big bit of the stone left like a, a large tree or a, a block of uh, um, to to support the leg so I think you know in in a high wind it might have sort of broken <laughs> off at the ankles and um, so they decided that they would um, they would have a meeting with uh, I think there are about 35 mostly artists called including Leonardo and the, uh, to decide where to put it. Yeah, well, before um, we go to that meeting, I want to ask you a bit more about, because I know that when you were doing the research for this, you made an extraordinary discovery. Yes. So can you tell us about that? Yes, well, I saw this drawing. Uh, in, in, it's in the margins of an early printed edition of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. And um, it, the drawing is in, illustrates the scene where Dante, he's scared, he's about to enter hell and he doesn't want to, he's very scared. And then Virgil, the, the Roman epic poet, who is his guide through hell, um, assures him that, um, he, that, that this is in the divine plan and tells him to you know, take courage and then uh, Dante does so. So this is a great moment of where he... Um, pulls himself together and decides to embark on this heroic, difficult task of going all the way through hell and, per and then purgatory and paradise. And the illustration for this is a drawing of a sculptor who seems to be turning away from this little grimacing statuette of a fawn. And he, and he seems to have turned towards this colossal head and he's got his mallet you know he's raised it up to uh, strike a you know a big blow and his chisel 
is on the on the mouth of the of of this sculpture of this head, and the head is in um, sort of antique style. And after after looking at this, I I thought to myself casually, oh, I wonder if I could fit this in to the book because it's a very it's a good I illustration of uh, you know uh, the the sculptor is in a singlet uh, a vest, and it's a really good illustration of uh, the you know, the effort that would go into to, to carving a sculpture. And then the, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it must be Michelangelo or modelled on Michelangelo. A, because he's the first sculptor, modern sculptor, to be, to be associated with colossal sculptures. B, because the head of the, the figure looks like um, some of some statues that were Michelangelo, the heads of statues that Michelangelo was making for an altarpiece in Siena at this time. And the stare and the scale is, is rather like the David. And the little fawn is like he made a very similar fawn for a sculpture of Bacchus previously. And, and the position he's in is like the nudes on the Sistine ceiling. He's uh, sitting, half sitting on the ground. And, and also Michelangelo loved Dante. And when he's doing the David, and um, it's all about that he is a hero. He writes on the only surviving drawing for the David. David uh, with his sling, I with my bow, Michelangelo. The bow is, people think, is either a bow drill or more likely the compasses that you use to do the, do the measurements and scale up a, a, a small model. So he's seeing himself as, as heroic as, as David. And, and, and Vasari, the art historian, writes about it in terms of only he was um, you know, able to take the, have the courage to... Make carve the David and use only one piece of stone. So, I think there are an awful lot of uh, um, aspects of this that that seem to fit Michelangelo. And I think uh, people would only think in relation, you know, of illustrating the Dante scene with a sculptor because of Michelangelo. That's amazing, isn't it? And what was he like? I know that we're going to talk about um, his great rival Leonardo in a minute. Tell us a bit about Michelangelo. What kind of a person was he? Well, he's the um, antithesis of the gentleman artist. The, 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 the sort of, I suppose, the, the standard view of artists in the, in the 15th century is they're all trying to get their arts accepted as a liberal art rather than a you know, manual labour. So, you, you, you know, in, in um, self-portraits of artists... You know, such as Dürer's self-portraits, he's wearing wonderful clothes, um, velvets, and uh, you know he's um, in, in the in the frontal portrait in Munich. He's feeling the the fur, and in fact, we have letters from him. Uh, you know, saying how excited when he's in Venice, how wonderful it is. You know, he's buying tons of clothes and he's going into debt. So uh, my, uh, Michelangelo seems to go to the opposite extreme. He wears, 
you know, he never changes his clothes. He, Vasari says he wore these um, dogskin boots that he never took off. Uh, and then when he finally did try to take them off, he peeled off his skin. And, and everyone says how rough and, uh, you know, coarse he is uh, as a person. Of course, he's not. He's, he writes poems and he's extremely, extremely cultured. Um, and, but what he's doing is he's, he, he's not saying, oh, I'm just a, you know, a manual worker. He's um, suggesting that what he's doing is, is akin to the, the labours of Hercules. Um, his first statue was, in fact, a, a sculpture of Hercules. It's, it, it, it's been, it was lost, so we don't know what it looked like. But this was a way that you could um, suggest that doing, um, you know, physical work was a heroic act. I suppose in the same way as a as a soldier. And Michelangelo, when he's 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 uh, painting the Sistine ceiling, um, he does a, a wonderful drawing of uh, himself. You know, the the exertion of of stretching up to paint the ceiling, and the poem is all about how twisted his body is like a Syrian semicircular Syrian bow and uh, and he says he he he, he can't paint properly because you can't shoot properly through a crooked barrel meaning the barrel barrel of a gun so he uses these sorts of military metaphors as well it's very different to the the sort of ideal of the gentleman artist it's a fascinating sort of dichotomy, isn't it, of the intense physicality of... I can't imagine how much physical effort it would have taken to carve a monumental statue like David. Mm. But then out of it comes this absolutely beautiful, detailed, incredible thing. And there, there seems to be a sort of, you know, that with, with his art, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, the effort and the pain that he went through to produce it but then there it is it's you know just unbelievably beautiful and detailed and um, yes it's an interesting dichotomy yes well he had to read letters for quite a while afterwards with his head bent back because he spent so much time looking up that um that he had to sort of retrain his neck muscles to uh, yeah to uh, well, I thought it was interesting what you said in your book about that you reproduced the handwritten the poem that you just mentioned, but it's written in the most beautiful handwriting. Obviously, there's he hadn't damaged his no small um, small motor skills, and it <laughs> no, well that the, 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 it's a it's almost a literary trope. The idea that he's uh, um, he's talking about these awful exertions, and yet he's he has different neatness and quality of handwriting that he uses for for different letters so he just uses you know worse handwriting for writing a shopping list and this one is written in his most calligraphic script and he would usually use that for ones he was sending to uh, things he was sending to you know important patrons or educated friends Um, and so yes there's a there's a kind of kind of joke yeah. in, in, in the perfection of the writing. 
Hello there. Quick word from me about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. It's pretty cold and dreary outside, but here I am, sat in the warm, with a copy of Ace's beautiful brochure of tours for the year ahead in my hands. And it's a brochure full of delights. In March, for example, you can head off to Ravenna with them, the famous city of mosaics to absorb the Roman and Byzantine architecture. Or in May, you can discover the treasures of the wonderful art collections of Harvard and Yale on a tour through the great art collections of New England. If you're into music, then there's a tour to the Richard Strauss Festival in Dresden this April. Or if you just want to get some fresh air in the great outdoors, then there's a cultural trip to the county of Norfolk in June. In fact, in this catalogue, there's a details of more than a hundred different tours from the UK to Uzbekistan, from the USA to Sweden and just about everywhere in between. So there's something for just about everybody to have a look for yourself. Head to their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Let's move on to your second scene now. So we're at this famous committee meeting. Yeah. They're deciding where they're going to put David. So can you take us there and tell us in particular about Leonardo da Vinci? Because I believe he's on the committee. Yes. Well, this this is probably the first time that a committee like this had been, uh, you know, formed for um, where to where to put an put an artwork. And most of them, I think, about a third of them wanted to put it under the Loggia dei Lanzi, which is the roofed over arcade where we now see Benvenuto Cellini's Perseus and, and Medusa and other sculptures and and um, and they wanted to put it there because the marble block had been left out in the in in, in the cathedral workshops for um, 40 years and they thought that it needed protection because the, the marble block would have been um, damaged by the by the weather and and Leonardo da Vinci who, who who had come to Florence in 1501 was on the committee and he agreed that it should be put um, under under the roof of the Loggia dei Lanzi and uh, Leonardo uh, was the epitome of the gentleman artist he was suave sophisticated he was witty he played music he was sought after by patrons all over Italy, almost as much for his um, entertainment value uh, as for any artworks he would produce. And of course, he was uh, no- notably likely not to, to fi- finish things. And he was uh, doing, at this period, he was doing lots of engineering projects as well. The Florentines wanted him to uh, divert to the River Arno, which went to Pisa, um, to starve the Pisans of water so they could retake the port and get their, get their port back. And this, this never, um, was never uh, achieved. And, and Leonardo and, and Michelangelo didn't get on. There's a wonderful anecdote about how um, they met. Uh, Michelangelo was walking through Florence and, and Leonardo was talking to some posh boys outside uh, a church and they were talking about Dante. And um, Leonardo sees Michelangelo passing by and they ask, and he asks him if he, he says, oh, and they've got a tricky passage they don't understand. And Leonardo says, 
oh, Michelangelo, you, you know about Dante. You, can you explain this tricky passage? And Michelangelo takes umbrage at this, possibly because Dante wasn't quite approved of at this time because his writing was so coarse. All those descriptions of the sinners in hell, those warts and all descriptions of the punishments. Michelangelo loses his rag and he says, oh, who do you think you are? You you failed to make the sports monument. In, this was a, an equestrian monument in Milan. Uh, of of the Duke of of the Duke of Milan, and and he'd failed to make it, and so this is seen as a sort of you know a, a moment that distills their um, their differences. Um, though in fact Michelangelo was hugely uh, influenced by Leonardo's drawing techniques, and uh, a, a large cartoon of the Virgin and Child and Saint Anne. He he put it on display um, in his in his workshop um, in, in Florence. And this is the first time that recorded, that ever recorded that an artist would display a drawing for people to come and look at and, and, and talk about. Um, and you see in Michelangelo's drawing technique how he's no longer doing clear contours round the figures but he's doing sort of exploratory sort of blizzards of of, of, of lines and did so, he admit that he was inspired by Leonardo or, or? um no no <laughs> he 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 would never admit that but you can see from his drawings as soon as he's in Florence with Leonardo that his drawing style changes and the other interesting thing i mentioned the drawing of of uh, it's actually the arm of of uh, the marble David that where he puts next to it this little poetic couplet of um, I sorry David with his bow um, sorry David with his sling I with my bow Michelangelo like Leonardo he starts putting texts and mostly poems on on the drawing so you, he he moves into word and image combinations and again you know you wonder well mm. that's a, an interesting coincidence where did he get that idea from yes um will you just tell us a bit about the uh, leonardo's writing about the perfect studio so i love that description of yes um, there's a great quote in your book about how civilized and beautiful the artist studio is compared to the sculpture studio which is a kind of terrifying workshop covered in dust Yes, when, when he's um, at the court of the Duke of Milan, this is when he has this abortive attempt to make an equestrian statue, he writes these um, comparisons. They're known as paragone, which is the Italian word for comparisons, between music and painting, poetry and painting, and sculpture and painting. And always in the painting comes out on on top, so they're sort of thought-provoking um, uh, discussions. So he and his uh, uh, intellectual friends would debate the the merits and uh, or, or otherwise of the different art forms. And when he contrasts painting and sculpture, these are the only contrasts where he actually talks about the places where the art is made. And so he gives a description of the painter's studio. And this 
is the first time that anyone thinks of the studio as an extension of the painter's personality as well, where, you know, the style is the man, interior design is the man. And, 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 and he says, the painter sits before his work at the greatest of ease, well-dressed and applying delicate colours with his light brush, and he may dress himself in whatever clothes he pleases. His residence is clean and adorned with delightful pictures, and he often enjoys the accompaniment of music or the company of the authors of various fine works that can be heard with great pleasure when read or recited aloud. So here you have this extraordinary uh, evocation of the artist just sitting at an easel. Um, and of course, Michelangelo, I'm sorry, Leonardo had you know, made uh, the fresco of the Last Supper where we you know, mostly have to, uh, had to stood up and it was in a damp refectory, um, not terribly comfortable. And he sort of seems to be turning his back on that idea. And, um, and, and this is almost the beginning of what we might call the rise of the easel painting, the small scale artwork, you know, like the portrait of, 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 of Mona Lisa, and, and also the kind of art that can be enjoyed in a, you know, a domestic setting by a connoisseur. This would be in incredibly, this sort of idea that, of easel painting as the ultimate art form would, would in, in many ways come to uh, sort of uh, dominate. And Michelangelo, typically enough, was absolutely, uh, didn't like easel painting at all, or oil painting. And uh, he said at one point, painting is in oil is an art of women and of people who are lazy. So for Michelangelo, it's doing heroic things like standing on a huge scaffold at the age of 60 to, be, to paint the Last Judgment. And he actually fell off the scaffold and hurt himself quite badly. And of course, the disadvantage of Leonardo's um, notion is you're sort of limiting the scope of art. And, and in the 19th century, the great French romantic painter Delacroix complained about our miserable little pictures painted for our miserable dwellings. And he was thinking of you know, easel painters and, and contrasting it with work artists like Michelangelo who'd worked on this hero, heroic scale, painting frescoes and making colossal statues. Mm. And so Leonardo, you know, when you look at Vermeer's painter's studio, you could almost read, you know, the Leonardo passage I've just mentioned, and you can see how this is, uh, you know, becomes a, an, an, an ideal. Well, they also became, studios became the galleries and the, the sort of shops, yes. didn't they, as well, because they would hang the paintings and hope that the people coming to be Yes, yeah, so you get the first sort of solo shows yeah. are, are in artists' studios. This, is, this partly happens because Gil, uh, um, art academies start, uh, arise, um, begin in the 17th century. They ban artists from selling work in shops. So what they do to get around this, and, and the French Academy even bans artists from 
showing work in their in their own windows. Why? Um, because they want to um, think that artists aren't traders. Oh, uh, and so it's about social status. So it's the whole project, like Leonardo was sort of trying to yes. elevate, and yeah. Dura before him, elevate yes. the status of the artist. Yes, elevate the status of the artist. So what artists do are, is they have, um, you get this distinction, it begins in Holland, you know, where mm. Vermeer is, where you have what's called the painting room, which is what we would call the studio, and the picture room, which is where probably next to the studio, where you display a selection of works which both gives the artist um, the opportunity to show what they what they can do and, and also work that people can just buy when off they, the peg when they, kind yes, of yes yeah. off the peg off the um, <laughs> and Vermeer's painter's studio is thought to have been a picture of this type yeah um, you know which showed everything he could uh, do. Yeah, well, I think in our third scene, we're going to be with both Leonardo and Michelangelo, and they are painting large-ish pictures. Can you take us there, please? Oh, yes. In the in the Palazzo della Signoria, they've built this huge uh, council room, modelled on the council room in Venice, which is a republic. And they need a huge room because, uh, you know, there are far more re representatives in, in the republican government. And um, Leonardo and a little later Michelangelo are, are um, commissioned to paint these battle murals celebrating great or not so great as it happens, victories by Florence. Um, and there's some dispute. It's not clear uh, where, where in the room they were going to be, but the likelihood is that they were either side of the head the, where the head of government was sitting. And would they have painted them in situ or would they have been painted on... No, they each got a... were given a, a room in which... a large room next to a church in Florence. Uh, Leonardo's room was um, near the adjoining uh, Santa Maria Novella, mm -hmm. where all the trains come into Florence now. Yeah. And um, Michelangelo um, had a room near, near a church... In, in Santa Croce, which is where his family came from and where the uh, Michelangelo's house and now museum uh, would, would be um, later on. So they were pitted against each other. And do the murals survive? Are they, are they No, because no. Neither, neither were finished. Uh, Michelangelo was called to Rome by Pope Julius the second oh, to make a massive tomb for for himself, and um, Leonardo went off to Milan, which was then controlled by the French, and the Florentines felt they had to they couldn't um, you know uh, they had to keep in with the, uh, the the French. The cartoons were made. In other words, these are large scale drawings, and you would transfer these drawings to the wall uh, and then and then you would paint the uh, the, the fresco uh, and both both of these seem to have been completed and Leonardo had made a start of the painting but as so often he used a different a new um, media and, and it didn't work very well. Did he do that a lot? Try to sort of experiment with 
yes, yes, with um, uh, the the Last Supper in the in Milan, he tried um, using different way of of painting, not not doing you know a fresco where you have to paint the wet plaster in one day, a section of wet plaster in one day, so you have to get on with it. Yeah. He was kind of coming back all the time to you know, touch things up and change his mind and so on and so forth. And that caused, as well as damp in, in the wall, caused, uh, you know, is why it's a wreck. Yes. <laughs> and it became a wreck pretty, pretty fast. But he clearly did not enjoy fresco painting as much. As uh, yes, it seems to be that, wasn't that way. was thing. But yes, he, he liked uh, drawing and mm. uh, filling, you know, books full of, uh, schemes yeah. uh, and the actual actual finishing off of things um, was uh, um, something that he uh, frustrated everyone. It's interesting. He went. To, he was in uh, Rome in the Vatican, uh, in in the Belvedere in in the Vatican, which is the print the Pope's summer villa on the hill. Just uh, on, it's on the edge of the Vatican City. Um, and uh, this was revamped before he moved in and they uh, included a, a table for grinding pigments in, in the refurbishment and you can't help but think this was wishful thinking <laughs> you know he, he or his assistants might actually do some painting do some work and mm. I mean maybe did it have something to do with the, the way that they were paid was he was he paid when he finished when he if well he, had... he he was a then he was a had a salary okay um, okay from... because payment was a big issue wasn't it Pat, the whole patronage thing yes you were often promised well, you, money yeah. but yeah I mean you could you know you you could have a the richest patron in the world but it was entirely up to them mm. whether they uh, painted Actually. and there, and there's constant uh, you know things of trying to get get paid your salary and then back salary and then and sometimes you know year, only years later if you're lucky might you might you get paid what, what you're what yeah you're because earning. also the artist had all the costs of their assistance and the materials yes. and, the, and the, we've talked about this on other episodes yes. the cost of the pigments to make yeah. the paints was absolutely extortionate wasn't mm. it and, and uh, with Michelangelo it's often the other way where patrons um want to get their money back because with marble sculpt you know marble anything involving marble the investment is in all upfront investment is enormous just for the lump of marble yes, never mind the, the lump of marble. hours yeah. of sculpting yeah so yes he's he, he, he was actually um when he when he left uh florence for rome he, he was declared a, a sort of a, a debtor um, by the the republic because you know he hadn't finished off uh, he he was paid to make twelve statues of twelve apostles for the cathedral and only one half finished one of Saint Matthew uh, was made um, and of course he didn't finish off the uh, Battle of Cascina for the uh, oh, yes. for the for the uh, Palazzo della Signoria um, and so he was declared. A debtor, so he was a criminal, and uh, uh, and uh, he, he that remained the case for a few years. Um, so interesting. Thank you. Um, 
Well, there's one more question to ask, yeah. which is, and I imagine that for you this would be quite difficult to choose because there's probably lots and lots of things that you would have liked to pick up. But what what would you have brought with you back to the present from our journey today? Well, it, it's not as as difficult as as it, as it might seem because uh, I've chosen a, a, a work that um, was was destroyed, um, and so. You know, it rather singles itself out. It, it, it's a. At the same time, as he was making the marble, David, he was commissioned um, to make a, a bronze statue of David, an equivalent of Donatello's David, um, because a French, high up French official, wanted to have it basically, and so they said, "Oh well, actually, we'll get." this young sculptor Michelangelo to make you something that's equivalent and and, and even better and they, again this was diplomacy because they were keeping in yeah. with the French so he he was commissioned to make it um, slightly and, smaller scale I would imagine uh, well it, it was commissioned it, it was going to be um, about five foot high um, but then the final work because of the weight um, when it was transported to to France in 1508, so it was much delayed, mm. and um, it was finished off by a, a a bronze specialist who did all the chasing. That's where you smooth off all all the bronze, and um, then it weighed a lot more. And so a, a, a scholar has worked out it must have been quite a bit bigger. So as so often with Michelangelo. Small beginnings become, you know, much bigger by the time he's finished. Um, and this went to France. The only visual evidence of it is a, 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 a drawing of it beside the arm of the marble David and the little poem that, I, that I've mentioned a couple of times. And there's this wonderful drawing of it. And it's, he's much more dynamic than, than Donatello's David and he's got this extraordinary sort of twist and swagger to him um, and so I I would you know I'd love to have this and know what it was like but it's probably too big for my small garden with with its pond so I might loan it to the V&A. That's very kind of you. <laughs> yes. Um, what a great choice. It's been such a lovely conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. That was me, Violet Moller, speaking to James Hall the other day about his book, The Artist's Studio, A Cultural History, which is not only fascinating, but beautiful too. As always, you can find more information, images and our full archive of previous episodes at our website, tttpodcast.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>